Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin. Few topics over the last several weeks of this summer have dominated the news cycle more than the protest in Hong Kong, and there are a few people within the Providence uh, network that I would rather speak about this issue uh, with than uh, Olivia Enos. Olivia is a policy analyst at the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation. She specializes in human rights and transnational criminal issues. She's a frequent uh, uh, writer uh, for uh, Providence and a, a frequent uh, speaker on the issue of human rights and uh, religious freedom within uh, China and the international community. So, Olivia, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Drew. Um, you've written for us, uh, and as, as we've been covering this uh, kind of the protests in Hong Kong, and so I, I want to uh, try and set the stage a little bit. Uh, I don't want to assume that you know our listeners are uh, you know have the maybe the entire picture because it's hard as as news cycle moves into news cycle and the the story continually develops. Um, it, it's hard to remember maybe how we got to this point. So maybe you could help us set the stage a little bit historically uh, with how we got uh, to this moment with these massive, almost record-breaking protests uh, on the streets of Hong Kong. Yeah, so in 1997, you had the British handing over Hong Kong, essentially returning it back to China after um, several years under British colonial rule. And at that time, um, the arrangement was an agreement to uphold something called the one country, two systems model. And what that essentially uh, allows for is for Hong Kong to operate in a capitalist system as it had under the British um, up until 2047, at which point it's actually supposed to be handed back to Beijing. But also at the time of 1997 was when they established the basic law. And the basic law does set up this framework, but it also really sets the tone for what life in Hong Kong will be like, and that is a system that um, adheres to and upholds the rule of law there. And so that's been really critical and really important. And I think that one of the reasons why people are seeing so much momentum in the current system is that you are starting to see um, people who are saying, you know, okay, the Legislative Council in Hong Kong introduced the extradition bill. This extradition bill would have allowed individuals to be extradited to China at Beijing's women caprice. And so they saw this as an erosion of the basic law and of that rule of law if the extradition law had been passed. But I would argue that a lot of the objections to that proposed extradition bill, which has since been tabled but not fully withdrawn, has to do with this broader sense in Hong Kong, feelings of and desire for reform that really lay dormant in Hong Kongers. And so I think that part of the reason why you see so much momentum is because the generation that will come of age in 2047 um, is, is now coming of age, is coming of an age now. And they're worried about what their future is going to be like and the extent to which they're going to have to sacrifice their liberties at the doorstep of Beijing. And so I think these are the central animating forces and part of the reason why you've seen people just coming out in droves in Hong Kong in support for what have been largely peaceful protests. So I'll point out, I guess, uh, just for the point of view of our listeners, you're calling on a, a cell phone. So the connection I know is uh, uh, may break up a little bit, but we appreciate you taking the time to uh, speak with us, even even via cell phone. Uh, so Carrie Lam, who is the exec, uh, chief executive there of the uh, Hong Kong um, city, the region, 
has been widely criticized for even introducing this extradition bill. And it, it has, considering the amount of like furor that is, it's kicked up, um, it's, it's been questioned, why would she do this? Why is this, uh, why would this be a wise kind of step? Did she just not anticipate this reaction? Um, is this just something she thought she could slip in, you know, silently without, and, and the, one of the things that you see in Hong Kong specifically, is that the, because there's a greater exchange of information, there's a greater level of freedom. It's a lot easier for the people to know what the government's doing. So it's not this isn't like you know the, the central government in Beijing that can do things and and controls the information to such an extent that people um, that they're ruling have no idea what's going on in Hong Kong. They know they can see. Wait, this law is being proposed. Wait, we could be extradited to mainland China. Like you know, we are going to oppose this. So what? What impetus or what um, has driven Lam's uh, approach here? Is, is there been any kind of rationale that she has given or that Beijing has given for this for this law? I think the decision to introduce the extradition bill itself was extraordinarily tone deaf. Um, it overlooked the fact that Hong Kongers have for generations really cherished their personal liberties um, and freedoms. And I think that what it really reveals is that there's a disconnect between the Hong Kong government and the will of the Hong Kong people. And I think it is important at this point to be reminded that the basic law did not establish a democracy in Hong Kong. So the system itself is not necessarily built to have a foolproof feedback loop between Hong Kong citizens and their government. But I think that those citizens are saying, look, this feedback loop is broken. We feel like there's no other way for us to be heard. And so we're having to take to the street in droves. And I think that this is true when you see any protest movement. It's really revealing the fact that citizens no longer feel heard by their government and they feel like they can't be heard apart from protesting. And so I think this is an important wake-up call for Carrie Lam, but also for the Legislative Council in Hong Kong. And hopefully they will realize that, you know, introducing controversial bills, I mean, if the extradition law were, were put into action, it would have an astronomical effect on Hong Kongers liberty. I think it would have a significant cost to even international business people who are doing business on the regular in Hong Kong because China, Beijing could essentially say, hey, we want to extradite one of your American businessmen or women. Um, there's several thousands of them that live in Hong Kong and operate on a day-to-day -day basis and, and could essentially do so at, at will. Um, and, and just the threat of it actually caused um, one of my colleagues at Heritage to write an op-ed that said, look, Hong Kong has enjoyed... Um, the top slot in Heritage's Index of Economic Freedom for the past 20 years um, since the inaugural report. And it would likely affect its placement as number one had the extradition bill actually been passed and, and if it ends up going into effect in the future. Right now it's tabled, but it's not fully withdrawn. So there's real fear from some of the Hong Kongers that it's being held for you know another time, another moment when it, the Hong Kong uh, authorities might just pull a fast one. So you bring up an interesting uh, idea that there's there's a correlation, it seems to be, between um, the economic vitality and importance of Hong Kong and the uh, rule of law that's established on the British common law system. It seems as though the uh, rule of law is um, essential for the, the economic freedom and the economic vitality of, of Hong Kong. And so what I'm 
um, uh, kind of interested in is in Hong Kong, you've got the, the fourth largest stock market in, in the world. And uh, you have a, a massive increase over the last 20 years of cross-border banking where uh, international entities are kind of using Hong Kong as an you know, ombudsman between uh, Chinese companies and the international community. And all of that seems to be in danger for China and um, uh, for the international community if if Beijing were to overplay its hand or send troops in or act kind of a, a overly violent. Do you see, um, in the way in which maybe, you know, history is is kind of prologue, when you look at like the 1989, which ironically 30 years, you know, this summer, like almost to the date um, of the protests uh, in Tiananmen Square, um, when you look at how, you know, Beijing um, overreacted there. We saw the scenes of tanks in the streets and the, you know, the famous scene of protesters standing in front of the, the line of tanks and the violent um, uh, oppression that China metered out in order to set back the, the protesters um, led to a cooling off, you know, the international community on China for the next you know, 10 or 15 years. The umbrella uh, revolution that happened in Hong Kong that was peacefully settled in um, uh, 2014, the umbrella, I guess, protest. Do you see um, China playing out its hand here? Do you see that it is uh, that it is taking into account um, that the world community is watching uh, when it's um, uh, trying to decide how to do with these deal with these protesters? Yeah, I think that. Um you know, last Friday, my colleagues and I put out a paper that was essentially responding to what if Beijing doesn't intervene militarily. And um, the report is unequivocal. It says, you know, essentially there should be no perception of business as usual with China if they engage in some sort of military intervention or otherwise. And I think we need to be unequivocal now in our rhetoric. Um, and, and I think we need to be clear about what exactly is at stake. Um, a couple of the solutions that uh, my colleagues and I recommend, for example, would be saying, you know, if there's anyone in Beijing who is seriously considering or encouraging some sort of military intervention, that person is at stake for targeted financial sanctions that would make it hurt real hard right in their bank account. Um, and so, you know, that's one uh, solution. The second honestly, is that there can be no, no way that a trade deal would move forward. The U.S. would have to discontinue any sort of trade negotiations with China where they'd intervene in Hong Kong. And I think that there are a lot of humanitarian steps that um, the U.S. can and should take as well, including by offering priority to refugee status to anyone from Hong Kong in the event that something like this happens. And I think that it's not just the U.S. that should respond. We've seen strong statements from the EU and otherwise condemning the whisperings and the murmurings that maybe some sort of military intervention would happen. But I think that China does recognize that there would be a real threat to its economic vitality were it to crack down in any substantial manner on Hong Kong. And so I think it's really, at this point, weighing its various interests that it has. I mean, China's primary foreign policy motivation is to maintain its own internal stability, to maintain its sovereignty. And in that sense, having unrest in you know Hong Kong, which is one country to a semi-autonomous region, would be um, you know, pretty devastating to them. But by the same token, they're interested in continuing to have economic engagement with the outside world. And so I think China itself is in a real bind. And I think Hong Kongers realize that they're in a position where they do possess some leverage. But I think they need to be careful not to overplay their hand over the long term. We've got to maintain that peaceful nature of the protests. And I think this is why 
the U.S. at the highest levels of government, including President Trump, who thus far has really refrained from any strong criticism of China when it comes to this. There's got to be strong rhetorical um, statements, one, in support of the peaceful elements of the protests, but two, and I would say arguably most importantly, in opposition to any sort of threat of military intervention in particular from Beijing. So it seems, though, that um, what the protesters are facing, uh, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit when you, in your kind of opening uh, setup of, of where we are, the context of, of this current uh, protest, the protesters are, are looking into the future and they are um, seeing uh, what Chinese rule looks like, you know, that the, the curtain has been drawn back a little bit and they, uh, what was once off, you know, 20 and 30 years into the future of, well, at some point in, you know, 2047, we're going to have to reconcile in some way with Beijing. It's kind of, they're getting little tastes of that and it's not palatable to them. I mean, it, it's obvious that they, they, the idea of Beijing uh, taking over control of, of Hong Kong or, or instigating kind of its Chinese uh, rule, uh, communist rule of law there is, is not something that's palatable. So even though it's not palatable, it's coming at some point, right? I mean, we're delaying the inevitable a little bit and it's it's just kind of the clock is, is ticking. How do you think that that inevitability plays in the minds of, of maybe both the protesters and Beijing? Now, Beijing's looking at this and say, hey, you know, one way or another, at some point in, you know, uh, 28 years, we're, we're all going to be one big happy family. Uh, the protesters are saying, you know, I, we don't even like the taste of what we're getting right now. We're looking into that future and we, you know, we don't want to go down that road. Um, how is that sense of inevitability playing out on both sides, do you think? Yeah, I think that part of the reason why you've seen so much momentum behind um, the current protests is because people from all elements of society, whether business people or students or religious um, folks coming from various religious traditions, everyone feels like there's something at stake for them when it comes to these protests. And I think that part of it is because they recognize that over the long term, um, there could be consequences. They're looking over at what's going on in you know, mainland China and saying, we don't want that to be our future. And so I think um, this is going to be very challenging. And I think that it poses some pretty fascinating and deep questions for the international community as to what do we what do we think Hong Kongers want the future of their country to look like, and how do we best support conditions under which they can make those those ideals a reality? And I think that that's going to be the question because come twenty forty seven, are you going to see you know some minor modifications, but basically a maintenance of the one country two systems model, or are you really going to see them being fully subsumed by Beijing's rules. Um, if the latter is the case, I think you're going to really get a lot of pushback, a lot of civil unrest. And so I would urge U.S. policymakers right now to really think about what do we want our position to be come 2047 and even in the lead up to that? Do we want it to be support for the continuation of one country, two systems? Or would we prefer to have a full-fledged democracy in Hong Kong? And I think that's a question that sort of is, is unanswered as of yet.
What role do you think that the international business community has in affecting the political outcome in, in China? Right now, there are currently around 1,500 multinational companies that have offices or regional offices there in Hong Kong. Uh, that's up two-thirds since the 97 handover. Um, there are major companies like even uh, Alibaba that are they're looking to perhaps be listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Currently, they're only listed in, in the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, they're, they're major um, investments investors that see Hong Kong as a safe harbor within the Chinese um, economic system where they look at Beijing and they they feel like it's it's or Shanghai they look at it it's not quite as uh, uh, safe it's it's a little bit more uncertain uh, we don't have as much of the rule of law uh, it, the economic system is so closed off we can't get information information is vital for economic development. Uh, so if Hong Kong, I mean, how do you see uh, maybe is, is there any is there any leverage from these corporations um, to perhaps affect the political outcome? I think that the business community has historically played a critical role in Hong Kong, um, both as advocating for freedom and free market practices in the region, um, but also just as a critical stakeholder critical institution within Hong Kong society. And I think that China cares what international businesses think about what it's like to do business in Hong Kong. And they recognize that it's a huge asset um, to their overall doing business with the world. Um, and so I think that the business community should be as outspoken as possible in defense of the liberties of average Hong Kongers who are taking to the streets in a peaceful manner and, and trying to in many ways, preserve the space that businesses have to operate on the day-to-day. -day. And so I think that that needs to be, you know, a central part of how the business conce businesses conceive of their role in these protests. I think also there's a really important role for um, members of the legal community to play. Rule of law has always been central to Hong Kong's continued existence. Frankly, um, the basic law itself really does set up a very positive framework for that. And we hosted Martin Lee, who was one of the architects of the basic law at Heritage, um, around the time that the extradition law was being considered and had recently been proposed. And he wrote a very hard-hitting piece, um, I think it was in the Washington Post, where he said, look, the reason why the extradition law has no place in Hong Kong is because Hong Kongers respect the rule of law. China has no rule of law. And we don't want that to be the future for Hong Kong. I think that is so poignant and encapsulates a lot of what animates um, the motivations behind Hong Kongers uh, being out in, in such immense numbers um, as we've seen over the past several months. My guest is Olivia Enos. She's a policy analyst at the um, Asia Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation. We've been speaking about the Hong Kong protests. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about the uh, uh, role of Christians in Christianity in Hong Kong and the potential threat uh, that these uh, recent uh, changes in law uh, pose to the Christian community there uh, when we come back.
Welcome back to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin. We're continuing our conversation with Olivia Enos. She's a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation, uh, speaking on the uh, recent protests in Hong Kong. Um, Olivia, we talked a lot about kind of the the general context and the economic and kind of political issues in the, in the previous segment. I want to talk a little bit about um, the religious angle. Um, Hong Kong is kind of a little bastion and a little pocket of, of freedom, uh, organized under the British common law system, um, has uh, you know far more uh, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of religion than the rest of, of course, mainline China, which has none of those things. About 11 percent, it's estimated, of, of Hong Kong's 7 million residents are Christian. Even Carrie Lam, who is the chief executive of um, Hong Kong, is, is reportedly uh, a Catholic. Uh, so... Um, Talk a little bit, if you can, or maybe shed some light on um, how these protests are maybe in part motivated by um, the religious community and the minority community there in Hong Kong and um, how it may be informed, how this protest may be informed some by the uh, the Christian presence. We've seen some of the protesters singing kind of Christian hymns as kind of anthems uh, for their their protests. So uh, shed a little light, if you can, on uh, the role of Christians within this Hong Kong protest. Yeah, what's been so remarkable about these more recent protests is that you have seen members from all different walks of life um, in the Hong Kong society coming out because everyone feels like they have something at stake. But I think one of the reasons why you've seen um, Christians in particular coming out in droves is because when they look over at what's going on in China, when they see uh, persecution of Christians there, when they see um, Beijing's sort of odd relationship with the Vatican, when they see how uh, Uyghur Muslims are being detained to the tune of millions in political re-education facilities, and, and also how China has cracked down on Tibetan Buddhists, I mean, no one is left unscathed. Um, and religion in particular is, is an object of Beijing's wrath. And we've seen this over and over again, time and time again, that China or all communist regimes, for that matter, really do see religion as a threat to them. And so I think that a lot of people in Hong Kong enjoy the religious freedom that they have long been able to practice during their life in Hong Kong and are wondering, you know, come 2047 or maybe even before, because the extradition laws were brought tidings of additional crackdowns that that could be the future for them. And so I think that it makes a lot of sense that the church has been involved. And I think that, you know, church, the church has played really critical role in a lot of communist revolutions. The one that come to my mind are like Romania or Poland, where you saw this intersection of average citizens in the church really driving toward a peaceful movement that did result in fundamental change without bloody revolution. And I think that that's what's really critical here that the church can be a really a peaceful element that comes in the midst of turmoil and chaos. And I think that that can be overlooked even from a historical perspective. So it seems to me there's there's a little bit of tension um, in this entire episode between the um, increasing authoritarian control of President Xi Jinping um, and uh, the the protesters and just the the general mood within China. That the more that he increases. Um, the less wiggle room he has in instances like this, right? That there is, uh, there when people begin to protest, if if 
he would take any challenge to him, whether it's in Beijing or whether it's in Hong Kong or whether it's in the Shenzhen province and the, the Uyghurs, like any challenge to his kind of uh, authoritarian control, um, it, it, if he fails to act and it fails to completely snuff it out, it's, it's a real sign of, of weakness. Um, when you look at uh, how Xi Jinping is, is dealing with religious minorities in the country, um, and you look at uh, the, the importance of the religious uh, community there in Hong Kong and the Christian community, I mean, there's it seems to be just this this para, paradigmatic struggle that's beginning to form between this authoritarian government and and um, the religious minorities in China. And the, the reports that we hear, you know, kind of anecdotally is that the Christian community is exploding in China, that house churches are exploding, that there is just a, a massive increase in uh, people who are confessing Christian faith and, and um, uh, re- that religion is expanding. It, the tighter he seems to grasp, the more likely it seems like a lot of this of China is going to slip through his fingers. Or there's that potential. When you look over the next 28 to 30 years, what do you, where do you see this going? I mean, do you see Xi continue to kind of consolidate his power and stamp out any resistance, uh, even if it's to his economic detriment? Or do you see that there could be a moment in which the um, the tide begins to turn, that there's a critical mass of people who maybe even look to places like Hong Kong and see the, that freedom is viable, um, that uh, freedom is, is worth the fight, and that um, China begins to shift and change from the ground up. Yeah. I mean, I think that it would be great if there was fundamental change in, and transformation inside of China. And we certainly have seen or soft transformations inside of China, particularly when they became more economically free. But one of the, the striking things about the transformations in China is that regardless of its opening up to the international community and the global markets, um, there has not been a subsequent improvement in civil and political rights there. And so you continue to see people who are persecuted massively, you continue to see, um, you know, individuals who are facing persecution like you referenced. And so I think that Xi Jinping is likely only going to continue to enhance his grip on power. And as a part of that, he clearly sees targeting religion as central to maintaining his grip on power. I mean, just last February or uh, in February of 2018, he uh, instituted new regulations on religious affairs. And, you know, it's regardless of whatever faith or creed you have, he wants all religion to conform with the Chinese Communist Party's basic precepts. And so this is a fundamental transformation of religion as a whole that, you know, at the end of the day, the buck doesn't stop with God. The buck stops with the CCP and, you know, what they say is right. And so this is really quite challenging. And I think it's really a full frontal assault on religious faith. And you have seen heightening persecution that came on the heels of these regulations on religious affairs. I think this is what we can expect to see for the foreseeable future, particularly under President Xi Jinping. But like I said, it's, it is impossible to predict the future. And we don't know who the next leader of China will be when you know Xi Jinping uh, finally does give up power, and we don't know when he will <laughs> give up power. And those types of variables definitely create an uncertain future. But at least for the foreseeable future, persecution of religion will continue to be a core component of the CCP's reign. 
My guest has been Olivia Eno. She's a policy analyst for the Heritage Foundation, and uh, you can read her piece, What We Have Learned from the Hong Kong Protests So Far, that she co-authored with Sarah Brown at ProvidenceMag.com. Olivia, thank you so much uh, for your expertise and uh, for your time, even though I know it's, uh, I think you're combating some illness and, um, and via cell phone, but we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.